Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing the Bombard story by Dr. Alain Bombard, translated by Brian Connell, and we're on Chapter 11. Chapter 11 Atlantic Challenge. That Sunday, 19th of October, the wind finally blew steadily from the right quarter, the north northeast. At long last, the trade wind had arrived. A French yacht was to tow me out of the harbour. My friends rallied round in a heartwarming fashion, showing a spirit of understanding which touched me deeply. Monsieur Fanot, our consul in Las Palmas, took me to mass in the morning and then accompanied me to the yacht club. His first intention had been to join the yacht which was going to tow me, but we were both becoming quite emotional, and fearing to upset me even further, he suddenly said in an almost gruff tone of voice, I don't think I'll come after all. Don't be angry with me. As if I could have been. I embraced him and we parted. It was Boiteau Père who finally came with me to the heretic. My equipment and stores of food checked and sealed by the consular authorities were already on board, together with the radio set which I had been given. Angelito, the head pilot, made one last inspection and gave my sextant a final check. While all this was going on, quite a crowd had gathered, I was given the club burgee and asked to sign the golden book. All my friends were there, and even strangers went out of their way to show their goodwill. I was astonished. Once we had set off, to find myself at the head of a veritable convoy, which accompanied me out of the harbour mouth, with all the ships in the port sounding their sirens. Sailing yachts of every shape and size tacked and crossed all round me, their white sails looking like seagulls. Some of their occupants made the sign of the cross as they passed, to bring me luck. We all felt that the supreme test was about to begin. As if to encourage me on my way, a great three-masted sailing schooner, the cadet training ship of the Spanish Navy, was hove to where I had decided to cast off my tow. I felt that fortune, in the guise of this survivor of the days of sail, had contrived this encouraging gesture. There she lay, lifting gently in the swell, one of the last reminders of the ghost ships, long voyages racked by scurvy, the castaways of Le Meduse, of those who had died of hunger and been engulfed in the man-eating sea. I had just cast off my toe when I saw the training ship's flag dip slowly in salute. All the cadets lined along the rail removed their caps as I passed. The thought struck me for a moment that in all the world's navies this was the manner of showing respect to the dead. To show I knew I would win through, I hoisted myself smartly and slowly drew away from the little yachts still tacking and crossing and saluting either with their flags or their mainsails. Gradually, they were lost from sight, all except the big schooner, who then gave me the last and most splendid salute. The midshipmen furled and then let go their three topsails in a whip-crack of wind and canvas which echoed across the water. It sounded more as if they were greeting my triumph than honouring my departure. The evening was completely clear, the wind blew steadily from the north-northeast, and the dinghy forged ahead at a good three and a half knots towards the south of the Grand Canary. I intended to hold a south-southwesterly course before turning due west. My position was exactly on the 28th degree of latitude north and 15th degree of longitude west. My goal in the West Indies lay roughly on the 60th degree of longitude west, with several possible landfalls between the 12th and 18th degree of latitude north. I had decided against setting a westerly course straight away in order to avoid the Sargasso Sea, which, with the doldrums, is one of the two major dangers of which I had to steer clear. 
north of the route I had chosen. The northern equatorial current and the Gulf Stream formed between them a gigantic eddy some 5,000 miles in circumference, containing a great mass of seaweed, the origin of which has always been a mystery. This is a Sargasso Sea, a great dead expanse. It is said that no form of edible fish has ever been caught there. The whole area has always been a major navigational hazard, a terrible trap where plant filaments and seaweed grip vessels in an unbreakable net. To the north, it was the sea that spelt danger. To the south, the winds were the menace. Here, the two powerful trade winds, one blowing northeast from Portugal and the other southeast from the Congo, meet in a tremendous conflict in a no-man's land of violent storms, unpredictable turbulence and disquieting calms, a sort of buffer state between the northern and southern hemispheres. It is called the doldrums. The region of anarchic violence of the elements which was very nearly fatal to Mamoz, and from which I knew I would not be able to free myself if I were caught there. To my right, I was threatened by the currents, to my left, by the winds. The stiff breeze which had sped me on my way did not last for long. It abandoned me during the evening. Looking at my useless sail, I wondered how long the calm would last, for I had no previous experience to guide me. Slowly and relentlessly the current carried the heretic to the south. I fixed my lantern to the mast so that I would be seen by the numerous ships which crossed between the Grand Canary and Fertaventura. With my steering oar lashed, the tent cover pulled up to my neck like a blanket, my head on the life belts, I dropped off to sleep about half past eight. The heretic drifted slowly in the dead calm. It was a cool night under a lovely, luminous sky. The next day and the following there was still no wind and I was in exactly the same position as on the day of my arrival when the mist had hidden the islands. I was completely isolated and knew only that there was one island to the right, another to the left, and that I could not see a thing. I was impatient to get out into the broad Atlantic where I would no longer need to show a light at night. There would be no ships to see me. Monday had brought the first sign of life in the sea around me. Unfortunately, they were still only small fish which swam ahead of the dinghy like pilots. They were difficult to catch and would have provided me with very little food. I began to fear that the calm would never break, but during the afternoon of the third day, a breeze sprang up and I was able to set course for the 21st parallel. I intended to hold this course for about 10 days, assuming it would bring me about a hundred miles to the west of the Cape Verde Islands, whence I would head straight for the West Indies. That day, I wrote in my journal, Morale excellent, but sun hot, very thirsty. Drank a little seawater as the fish are still sulking. Have only been able to catch about three pounds, quite insufficient to provide fresh water. However, this should improve. Water seems much less salty than in the Mediterranean. That night, my situation was really brought home to me. It was all very different from the dummy run I had made across the Mediterranean. A busy, civilised lake, crisscrossed by ships. Now I was in a boundless ocean, with little likelihood of meeting any vessels. The Atlantic would really put my theories to the test. Right from the start, everything combined to bring this realisation home to me. The trade wind sprang up again. Soon, it approached gale strength carrying me first on their crests and then in their troughs. The waves either protected me from or exposed me to its blast. Their tops were breaking all around me. I wondered what would happen if the heretic came just under one of these onrushing waterfalls. Unable to do anything about it, but confident in the dinghy's stability, I dropped off to sleep, expecting an untroubled night. It became a nightmare. 
Suddenly, half in a dream, I seemed to be surrounded by water. Confused and panic-stricken, I tried to gather my thoughts. Was there still a boat under me? Was I in it or in the water? I started swimming and then struck out desperately. Half dead with fright, I woke right up. The heretic was completely submerged. I realised that a wave must have broken right on top of me. I must start bailing at once. Only the inflated floats showed above the water. Everything else had become part of the sea. But the heretic continued imperturbably on its course, like a wreck. Once I had woken up, there was no time to be frightened. Almost instinctively, I started scooping out water with my two hands and then with my hat, a ludicrous utensil for what seemed a superhuman task. I had to bail furiously between each big wave so that the heretic would survive the next. But even with a proper bailer, I would have needed to display a degree of energy which would have soon exhausted me. Each big wave hit the stern board with a thud and then water flowed in anew, making the work of the previous ten minutes or quarter of an hour useless, pointless and hopeless. It is still beyond my comprehension how, numbed with the cold, I managed to keep this up for two hours. That was the time it took to get the dinghy properly afloat again. I can only say to my fellow castaways, be more obstinate than the sea and you will win. I was safe, but everything in the dinghy was completely soaked, and when the sun started to dry things out, they would all be covered with a film of salt, which was going to absorb the humidity every time night fell. The whole craft had become a sort of salt marsh. Most of the equipment was in watertight containers, and fortunately the radio had not been affected. The matches, on the other hand, were absolutely soaked. In due course, I spread them out in the boat to dry in the sun, with very little hope of there ever being any use again, but at least I had to try. Fortunately, I had about a hundred boxes with me, but I would be lucky to find one in each box that would light. There was still land in sight, which I assumed was the last I should see. The one great satisfaction I had was that the heretic was at least never going to capsize. The dinghy had behaved exactly as I hoped, like an aquaplane or floating platform, sliding over the crests of the waves without offering any resistance. There was a reasonable hope that she would reach the other side in one piece. The following night, fearing a similar disaster, I lowered the sail as soon as the wind showed signs of freshening. To prevent being flooded by another breaking wave, I let go the sea anchor, turning the bow to the swell. But it was exasperating to have to sacrifice the night's run. I had yet to catch a single fish, but the concentric wakes they made round me proved that there were plenty there. As I had foreseen, two days would bring me all I needed. There is no entry in my log for Thursday the 23rd because I was too busy all day with needle and thread. The wind had blown up fresh and strong from the right direction, the faithful trade wind from the northeast which was to carry me to my destination, but fate has its own ironies. Hardly had I trimmed the sail to the wind when it tore right across at its broadest part. It had brought me all the way from Monaco to the Canaries. When I started off again, I had made up my mind to use it as long as possible and then replace it with the new sail I had in reserve. But I had not expected I would need to change them so soon. I threw out my sea anchor, lowered the sail and rigged the new one to the yard. Half an hour later, a sudden violent gust wrenched it off and sent it flying away like a kite. I saw it splash into the sea a little way off. What was worse, it had carried away not only the rigging, but also the main sheet and halyards. I had no alternative but to rely on my old, torn sail, so I started laboriously to sew it together again. All I had was a reel of ordinary black thread and a few darning needles. I had to work on it inch by inch, as the lack of space prevented me from laying the sail out. 
I had to mend the rent little by little just as I had slowly bailed out the boat and was gradually to win my battle over the elements. By the time evening came, I had just about finished. I was very tired and preferred not to subject my handiwork to too severe a test. After all, it was the last sail I had and I could not afford to have it torn away. I had to put out the sea anchor again and resign myself to the loss of a further precious night's run. During the whole of the rest of the voyage, I always had a pang of fear when I looked at the black darn right across the sail, rather like a piece of scar tissue that threatens to burst. But above all, I was afraid of the very fear it engendered, because increasing tiredness and exhaustion led me to expect the worst, and this in turn made me weak and cowardly. From this moment on, I was prey to an inner conflict of morale, quite as vital as that with the elements. When things were going badly, I managed to cope with it, but when there was some slight improvement, I began to fear the worst again. I began to have doubts about the ability of my equipment to last the course. My low spirits that night are perhaps explained by the fact that I was frozen, chattering with cold, soaked to the skin and encrusted with salt. Never had I waited so desperately for the sun to rise. It seemed that it would be my only salvation. I had either forgotten or had never really learnt what a dangerous friend it could be. I had at this time made very little progress, and what was worse, had very little idea of exactly what distance I had covered. It was the start of my errors in calculating the longitude, which were to have serious consequences, as I shall note in due course. I was still in the area where the trade winds blew strongly. It was only later, when their effect was distributed over a larger area, that they were to diminish in force. For the time being, the waves were the greater menace, tall and white-capped like a malicious child showing its pearly teeth. As one does in front of a child, I tried to hide my fears and hoisted my patched sail. I had hardly gathered way again when the harvest of fish began. They appeared first as green and blue stains in the water, timid to start with, and approaching the dinghy with great suspicion. They disappeared with a flip of their tails as soon as I made any sudden gesture. However, it was high time to start laying in a supply. During the whole day of the 24th, I worked at bending the point of my knife gently without breaking it on the flat part of an oar, as if on an anvil. I then bound the handle of the knife with a length of twine to the end of an oar, so that I could harpoon the first fish which came near enough. Almost anything will serve as a lashing, a necktie, shoelaces, a belt or strands of rope. A castaway would always have something of the sort. I intended to dispense as far as possible with my emergency fishing kit, normal equipment in a sealed box carried by most life rafts, as someone on a raft might well be without it. I intended to do what I could with the material on board. While I was working away, I was astonished to see several birds wheeling overhead. I had been convinced there would be none once I was out of range of land, and the sight of them exploded another landlubber's notion. No day was to pass without my seeing some form of bird life. One bird in particular became a personal acquaintance. Every day of the voyage, he appeared at about four o'clock to circle a few times over the heretic. But for the time being, I was concentrating on the fish. On Saturday the 25th, after half catching and indeed wounding a number of fish and then seeing them wriggle off the end of my makeshift harpoon, I managed to catch my first dolphin, or to be correct, Dorado, this is a fish, not a mammal, but I shall use its more common name. I was saved, but not only did I have food and drink, but bait and hook as well. Behind the gill cover, there is a perfect natural bone hook, such as can be found in the tombs of prehistoric men, 
which I think I can claim to have adapted to modern use. My first fishing line was at hand. From then on, I had all the food and liquid I needed every day and was never in danger of starving. That was probably the most heretical aspect of my self-imposed role of castaway. During these first days, I was not yet completely alone on the sea's expanse. A large number of ships passed me, apparently bound for the Canaries, but not one altered course to assist me. I shall never know whether I was actually sighted, but it is more than likely that someone in a raft is very difficult to see. I was to have more than one proof of this. On the other hand, the heretic was surrounded by an absolute shoal of fish, which never abandoned me. Fishermen and experts had prophesied before my departure that once I had left the Canaries, I would never catch a thing. Precisely the contrary happened. The green and blue patches I had noticed became the silhouettes of large, familiar fish jostling round the dinghy. I was to get to know their spiny backs well, recognise them as old friends. From time to time, a crack like a pistol shot attracted my attention, just in time for me to see a silvery underside disappearing into the waves. The wind had now become predictable and regular. I left my sail set night and day, and with no land obstacles to avoid, I was able to run before it without worry, watching the slightly faster swell roll past me. Just as speed assures a cyclist's balance, so it gave me additional security. If I had stopped, the waves would have broken against my sternboard and flooded the boat. I could not help feeling worried about my equipment, particularly the patched sail, wondering whether it would stay the course. I wrote in my log. Before I left, I was convinced that my chief anxiety would be to obtain food and drink, but it transpires that worry about equipment and the no less serious problem of humidity are worse. I have no option but to continue using the damp clothes I have with me, otherwise the cold would kill me. And I noted, already at this early stage, a castaway should never take off his clothes, even if they are wet. I realised, even though I had been soaked to the skin on the second day, that wet clothes succeed in conserving the body's warmth. I was purposely wearing the sort of clothing that a castaway might have, trousers, shirt, a pullover and a jacket. Wiser now from experience, I no longer regarded as figures of fun the mussel and shrimp catchers who always wear the warmest clothing they can get with long woolen stockings and stout waterproof boots in spite of the weight involved when trudging through the shallows. On Sunday the 26th of October, I had written in my log, can no longer determine my longitude with certainty. I shall just have to guess it from the time the sun reaches its meridian. This problem had acquired grave importance. In principle, the height of the sun above the horizon at noon should enable me to determine my latitude, and the changing time at which it reached its zenith should give me my longitude. When I left, I was on the 15th degree of longitude. I should therefore have found the sun at the summit of its trajectory at one o'clock by my watch, which was set to Greenwich Mean Time. In fact, when I first timed it, the sun reached its zenith at 12.15. I estimated that I needed to make a correction of 45 minutes, an error which was to lead me into others still greater. That day, I found in my pocket a note from my friend John Staniland, owner of the yacht Nymph Errant, who was due to leave the Canaries three weeks after myself. It gave the address to which he had asked me to telegraph news of my arrival in the West Indies. John Staniland, care of Kings Harbour Master, Bridgetown, Barbados, to await arrival of British yacht. He must have known that he would get there long before me, but clearly wanted to encourage me by suggesting that I would get there first. I was still over-optimistic. I wrote in my log, 
If I am where I think I am, I should be at latitude 21 north by Wednesday, changing course to the west on Thursday, covering 700 miles in 10 days. I still have 1,800 miles to go, another 25 days at my present speed. However, I must not be too optimistic. The main thing was to be of good heart, and I was full of hope during most of the crossing. It seemed as if I had left only the night before, although I had already been at sea a week. Now that I am back, I am often asked if I was not bored. That at least is something that never happens at sea. This adventure formed a separate compartment in my life. Although each day seemed interminable, time had lost all relative importance. There were no points of reference on which to base its passage, such as appointments, the day's normal rigid timetable. Time passed without my being aware of it. Only later, when this existence had acquired a patina of normality, did time begin to weigh heavily when I was able to compare a particular day with others exactly like it. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.